Good morning, church. Hey, listen, just before we get into God's Word, just a reminder that uh, next Friday is November 11th, uh, Remembrance Day, and uh, we are a congregation blessed to have um, quite a few uh, former members of the military veterans uh, in our church, but then also because of our proximity to Base Borden, we have quite a number of active duty personnel who are also part of our uh, Harvest family and grateful for all of them, grateful for what our military does here and around the world uh, to protect and to uh, lift up the cause of freedom and justice around the world. And so I hope that this Friday, the only thing I want to say about that, you know, in addition to just thank you to those who serve and have served, but uh, just that you would find yourself on Friday taking uh, the appropriate time to remember. And so if that means getting out to a cenotaph, I would strongly encourage that, whatever community you're from, that you would get to one of the services that are being held on Friday. Um, be there uh, for that. Pause at 11 o'clock to remember. Um, if you're not able to do that, be sure to pause. Uh, maybe take in a service that you might find uh, online or on television and, and, um, and just like really be grateful for what God has done. Uh, through them, uh, through these dear servants uh, in our country. <clears throat> All right, Revelation chapter 11, as Nathan said, is where we are. And there is, a, um, there is a great responsibility that comes with being a witness to a crime or to an accident or to some other uh, unlawful act. Uh, the witness in a court proceeding performs a vital role in bringing about uh, justice in that proceeding. And as a citizen, you should feel the weight of civic responsibility should that ever be required of you, should you ever be asked to be a witness. I looked on the uh, federal government website to see what's the oath? What's the oath that we have to take in court? Because I know the one that we hear on TV, but I wondered if that was like close to the actual truth. Of, um, of the oath, and there's various oaths, and, and they can be said in different ways, uh, but the basic one that's provided in the Canada Evidence Act is this. I solemnly affirm, do you want to say it with me? I won't get you to stand or put your hand in the Bible or anything, but let's, but let's just go ahead and say this together. I solemnly affirm... Yeah. So help me God, yeah, right? That's right. Like I knew somebody was going to add that in, uh, but that's not actually in the Canada Evidence Act. So, um, but but there's there's the the solemn oath that we would take <clears throat> if we were witnesses in a court proceeding. And in Revelation 11, how that relates here is in Revelation 11, we're introduced to two witnesses who carry out a truth-telling assignment from God in the midst of a rapidly collapsing world system that is hostile to the testimony that they're giving. And when I say that, like that just rings true of today, doesn't it? I mean, I'll say this sentence again. Two witnesses who carry out a truth-telling assignment from God in the midst of a rapidly collapsing world system that is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That sounds like today. And these two witnesses have this experience that actually provides a template for our witness today because every Christian is called to be a witness. And in fact, in the highly symbolic images that we're going to see in Revelation 11, there's every reason to believe that the church and Christians today, you and me, are represented in these two witnesses. 
This isn't just about a future event, and it is about that. It's the book of Revelation. We're seeing a future event that's going to come about. But it's not only about a future event where these two witnesses preach, but it reflects the present responsibility that you and I have to witness to our world of the gospel that has changed everything for us, a gospel that is the only hope that this world has. And so Revelation chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation 11. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. We're going to do chapter 11 over the next two weeks. This is, uh, again, the Apostle John recording uh, his experiences here. He said, Then I was giving a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if, if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast <clears throat> that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. <clears throat> well, there's nothing like coming to church on a Sunday morning to find an encouraging message and to hear a message about two guys who are doing God's work and who are killed and whose bodies are left to rot in the middle of the street. Welcome to Harvest. Um, but there is an encouraging message here, and it's all about us being witnesses. And on the screen right now and in your notes, you see this. As a witness of Jesus, this is all of us. As a witness of Jesus, I know that there is a dividing line between those who are inside and those who are outside of God's kingdom. Now, John was given this task to measure, we see it in verse 1, to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But in verse 2, we're told he was, he was further told not to measure the court outside the temple, leave that part out because it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. We're going to come back to those details. But to understand what John's being asked to do here, let's show a little, a little graphic of uh, the temple in Jerusalem. And this would have been the temple 
This was Herod's temple. This was the last temple that existed. Herod was the one who fixed it all up and built the whole temple precinct. And, and, um, and this would have been the temple that was in their minds as readers of Revelation. So John wrote Revelation after he received all the visions, he wrote it and sent it out to the churches somewhere around the mid nineties in the first century AD. And the temple had been destroyed in, in AD 70, about 25 years before that. And so anybody who's reading Revelation, if they're thinking about a temple, they're thinking about this temple. They're thinking about Herod's temple, the one that he had built for the Lord. And the thing that you need to know in terms of the measuring is this. There were different parts of the temple that different people could go in. The Holy of Holies, of course, only the high priest could go in there and only once per year. There was another section of the temple where any of the priests could go. When they were serving, they would be allowed to go in that part of the temple. There was another courtyard, and these were all coming out from the center, another courtyard where any Jewish man could go. And then the court of the women was the section where any Jewish woman could go. Then there was the court of the Gentiles. And you can see this here, that the larger area on top of the whole temple establishment on both sides, all around it was the Gentiles courtyard. So even those who didn't believe from the nations, non-Jews or believing non-Jews could come and, and be in the temple of the, or in the courtyard of the Gentiles and be close to the temple, but not in it. If they ever crossed the threshold into the court of the women, into the temple proper, they would be uh, under a death sentence for having done so. And so you see all these different sections and John is told, go and measure that out. And he's told there's a part of it I don't want you to measure as you're measuring everything. And it's not entirely certain that John, what John was actually supposed to exclude. Was it to be just the temple proper and not the, not the courtyard of the women? Or was it to be the, everything that was in the temple and then, and then not the Gentile court? And it's actually best to see it that way, best to see the Gentiles' courtyard as the part that is outside that John wasn't to measure. But what's absolutely critical as we look at this is why measure it all? Why measure it all? I mean, this isn't the first time that God had asked for the temple to be measured. He had asked other prophets in the Old Testament to measure the temple as well. The point of the measuring was to delineate who was in and who was out. What is in is owned by God and protected. What is out, God does not own and is not protected. So what's happening here is, as God asked John to measure out the temple, what, what God is doing is he's establishing his own territory. He's, he's, he's letting everybody know what his possession is. And, and more correctly, who his possession is when he says, I want you to measure those who worship there. Now, symbolically in the New Testament, especially believers, the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Individual believers are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. The gathering of God's people in the church of Jesus Christ is called the collectively the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God on earth. He lives inside of us. He indwells us. But specifically in this passage, there's something, there's something very distinct happening. Namely that national or ethnic Israel, the Jewish people, are what's in view here. See, this is a further prophecy about the regathering of the Jews. And we're going to hear more about that in just a moment. But 
But let's talk about this, the whole issue of in and out. Who's in and who's out? That's troubling to some people. It's troubling to some people that there's even an in and an out. Many Christians rightly accept the uncomfortable biblical truth that there are, as Jesus explained, sheep and goats, believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, those who are in and those who are out, saved and unsaved. And that these two distinct groups, saved and unsaved, are going to spend eternity in very different places. One group will spend eternity in the presence of God, in the blissful presence of God, enjoying his favor forever, no more sorrow, no more death, no more sin. The other group will spend eternity separated from God in eternal torment. The only way that we could ever believe anything other than this when reading the Bible is to do interpretive gymnastics to twist and distort the scriptures to allow it to say something other than what it says so very clearly. I called it an uncomfortable truth because no one likes the idea that their loved ones who do not believe in Jesus will spend eternity in hell. No Christian should like that idea. In fact, some professing believers go too far today being so uncomfortable with this truth that they embrace the idea of annihilationism, whereas the deceased simply ceases to exist after the judgment. But that violates the creation principle that human beings are eternal beings, that they're made in the image of God. That we're not simply material. We're, we're, we're different than all the rest of creation. We're different than all of the animals. We're not simply material but body, soul, and spirit. God's very spirit was breathed into humanity. And unless we embrace this uncomfortable truth, which is quite clear in the book of Revelation, that some will be saved and some are condemned, unless we embrace this, we will find ourselves disengaged from the mission to bring them from the outside in. You see, unless people are in peril, there's really no need to offer them help. Unless people are in danger of going to hell, there's no need to actually preach the gospel to them. And so God makes the point with this assignment that he gives to John. He has the prophet measure it out. Some are in and some are out. And secondly, notice, I have been empowered, you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to appeal to those outside to turn to Christ, seeing their peril. We want to tell them. God raises up and gives his divine authority, see it in verse 3, his divine authority to these two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years or 42 weeks, or these are all the expressions that are used for this time period. 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 weeks, or time times and half a time. 
all describing the same period of time, no matter where you're reading it, in any of the apocalyptic literature, anywhere in the Bible, it refers to this time. And they prophesy for these three and a half years. They just don't get hung up on the word prophecy. They're preaching. They're just preaching the gospel. They're letting people know about Jesus. And they have a three and a half year ministry where they're doing this. And then John tells us the wardrobe they're wearing as they do this. So we have this little like fashion moment in Revelation 11 in the midst of the heaviness here. They're clothed in sackcloth. This is, the, this is the traditional, humble garb of a prophet of judgment. We, to, for example, John the Baptist dressed in this way because they're bringing a message of doom. There's a sadness attached to it. There's mourning and lament over the fact that people are in their sin and they're on their way to hell. Further, the sackcloth shows that that their power is in the spirit and not in their own abilities, not in themselves in any way. Now, this is in contrast, by the way, to quite a number of preachers today. I don't know how many of you um, are on Instagram or know about an Instagram account called uh, Preachers in Sneakers. Anybody know about this account? Just raise your hand if you know about this account. Okay, just a few people know about this account. It's, it's, um, it's an account that is exposing preachers out there for their excesses, largely in the area of fashion. And, um, and, and I'm sharing this with you because it's in contrast to these preachers who are very serious about the gospel and who are wearing sackcloth. And, and, and I'm sharing it with you because I, I want you to be aware of what's out there in terms of some of these preachers. And I think that's a good thing for us to talk about once in a while. So preachers and sneakers, I just thought I would do this. It's, it's uh, risky. But I just thought I would, I would show you a few of the posts that they have put up about some of these preachers. Sound good? Listen to me, 11 o'clock. You all had an extra hour of sleep, and you're at the late service. Okay. If nine o'clock's a little slower on the replies, I get it. <laughs> Preachers and sneakers. Example number one, Robert Maydew. He, his sneakers cost $1,400. U.S. $1,400 U.S. They're not even that attractive. Now, in contrast to that, I'm the kind of person, I mean, you look at my sneakers today, I think I paid 20 bucks for these on a clearance rack, but I'm the person that will not spend more than $60 on a pair of shoes. Who are me, my people? Who are my people here? Will not spend more than 60 bucks on a pair of shoes. But preacher here, this preacher right here, 1400 bucks US. How about this guy, Dr. Darius Daniels? $990 for that sweater. U.S. dollars. Funny thing is, I saw that same sweater at Marshall's yesterday for 29 bucks. (laughs) This guy, this guy you'll know. Stephen Furtick. Ooh, Stephen Furtick. Elevation Church. $1,100 leather boots. $1,100. I don't even get it. 
And, and by the way, I'll just throw this one in. It's not a fashion thing, but if you wanted to go see Elevation Church in worship this past week and hear Furtick as part of that, um, 11, resale tickets, almost $1,100 to go and listen to Elevation and, and to hear Furtick. $1,100 US. Now, now, to be fair, front row, but... Free. <laughs> All right, one more before this sermon goes completely off the rails. Guillermo Maldonado, denim jacket, $4,850 US. Exactly my point. You see, it's pastors like this. We're looking at these two witnesses who are putting their lives on the line for the gospel. And so many who are doing that around the world today. And these pastors, it's pastors like these that misrepresent the gospel message and undermine the gospel mission. And people outside the church laugh when they see nonsense like this. You see, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, not empowered by an image consultant. We're not driven by Instagram likes. Our appeal is to the unsaved to repent and be saved, not that they would become cool, fashionable, and rich. It's not a prosperity gospel that we preach, but one of eternal salvation. And John sees these witnesses with, with, with you know, as he further describes them, this is imagery that we see right out of Zechariah in the Old Testament, noting verse four, that they are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, indicating the divine authority that they have to proclaim the difficult truths to a people that don't want to hear it. In fact, in a, in a key verse that I'm sure you've heard before, this is in Zechariah uh, chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the power in which these two witnesses have come. That's the power in which our church operates and every Christian ought to operate. That's how all gospel ministry should be conducted, in the power of the Spirit, not in our might, not in our power. And so your ministry, my ministry, your witness, my witness, not by might, not by power, by my Spirit, says the Lord. Now notice how God protects them as they carry this out, because it's such a hostile environment, especially as we see this at the end of the age, verse five, if anyone would harm them, this is how they're able to continue for three and a half years. If anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now, listen, obviously that kind of thing's not happening in the church today where we're uttering words and people are being vaporized in front of us because they're not believing the gospel because they're opposing the message that we're proclaiming. In fact, this is about eventual, ultimate justice. We've talked about this before in Revelation. Now, God's going to vindicate every one of his witnesses. Every one of his martyrs is going to be vindicated. Everyone who's been persecuted, everyone who's given their life for the gospel, at the end of the age, God is going to vindicate every one of them. He's going to do it in his perfect time, his perfect way. And so we see here, the specificity of this is another thing that leads us to believe that there's yet a future fulfillment with these two very specific, very real witnesses. 
even while we're seeing the application for us today, there's this future fulfillment with two actual witnesses. Now see the particular abilities that that these two have. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. That sounds a lot like, anybody got it? Elijah, that sounds a lot like Elijah. Then then notice they have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth and every kind of plague as often as they desire. That sounds like, that's Moses. So these are the two prophets, Elijah and Moses, by the way, that showed up in Matthew 17, the transfiguration of Jesus. These are the two prophets that were with Jesus. These two prophets are, are, are principal prophets to all Jews. But there's no need to see that these two witnesses in Revelation 11 are actually Moses and Elijah. But that they are prophets in the spirit of Moses, in the spirit of Elijah. In the very same way that when John the Baptist came, he fulfilled the prophecy that said that Elijah would come before the Messiah to prepare the way for him. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah and fulfilled the prophecy. And all of us should want, here's the point of this, all of us should want to proclaim the gospel as these two prophets did in the same power that they did, empowered by the Holy Spirit to appeal to those who do not yet love Jesus and are currently outside of the kingdom to come to him and to believe his message. And part of that calling that's on every one of us is this, that we are fully aware that we will be fiercely opposed by those who despise the gospel. If we take on this mission, people are going to hate us for proclaiming the gospel. And some of you know this already because you have attempted to share the gospel with others and you have been met with varying degrees of rejection and even hostility. And, And knowing that, Knowing that we're going to face hostility when we share the gospel, that should be an encouragement to you that you're included with everyone in that. And it should also be motivating to you that we can keep going because look at the way God is going to work everything out in the end. Let's keep on mission. Let's keep sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it. Now, when these two witnesses, when when their task is done, verse 7 takes us there. When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. So we've come to the end of three and a half years. This is the full extent of their ministry. Now this beast is rising out of the abyss. This, by the way, is the first mention of the beast in Revelation, but not in the Bible. We're going to see the beast again in more detail in chapter 17, chapter 13 and 17, rather. This is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist himself appearing out of the abyss. This is Daniel 7, and and so much of Revelation 11 is built off of Daniel 7. But this is the little horn that comes out of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7. This is what Paul called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. This is the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about, that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24. I mean, this appearance of the beast, of the Antichrist, this is the big build toward the stunning climax of human history. This is the beast. This is Satan's own earthly representative. This is a demon-directed human leader. And throughout history, we've seen lots of little Antichrists, lots of demon-directed leaders. You just read history, and it is replete with these 
antichrists who all point forward to the one ultimate antichrist that we're reading about here in Revelation 11. And this antichrist will be given some off-leash time to allow evil to have its full and final effect. Verse 7 continues, we will make, this, this antichrist will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. It's like, I've been listening to these two guys preach this message that opposes everything we believe, and I am up to here with them. I've had enough, and it's over. And the Antichrist, because God allows him, the Antichrist takes care of business, and he kills them. Verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. The great city here is Jerusalem. Some commentators say it's a, it's a combo of Jerusalem and Rome and Babylon and everything that we would see as evil and having rejected Christ. Symbolically, it's called Sodom and Egypt, and these two nations are picked because both of them oppose the ways of God. Sodom was known for its immorality. Egypt was known for its idolatry. And both of those things together are, are, are pushed together to show just how evil this great city had become. Depicts the unrestrained animosity toward God and his gospel. And the Lord is never shy. We might be uncomfortable right now, but the Lord is never shy about using strong language and strong parallels to get his children's attention. This is the city, he says. And this is how you know it's Jerusalem primarily. This is the city where their Lord was crucified, where their Lord, where, where, the, where the, the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel's Lord was crucified. The indignity toward the witness is so shameful, showing just how depraved they had become. Verse 9, for three and a half days, people are going to gaze at their dead bodies. They're, they're, going to, they're going to walk by. They're going to look at it. Look at these two bodies rotting in the streets, not prepared for burial or anything. They refuse to let them be placed in any kind of tomb. Even Pontius Pilate was gracious enough to allow the body of Jesus to be taken down from the cross and buried. They are far worse than Pontius Pilate and the Romans. Verse 10 says they rejoice over them, make merry, exchange presents. They have a party. They're so engrossed by their sin that they're celebrating their death. They're declaring a holiday. They're having a parade. They're giving gifts to one another to celebrate the end of this message that was tormenting them. They're celebrating their rebellion, celebrating their hatred of God. Why? It says right there, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. They just kept poking them. The gospel kept poking them and making them uncomfortable and challenging the way that they were living. And they didn't like it. These two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now remember, the two witnesses are the final culmination 
of all these hundreds and hundreds of 2,000 years of gospel preaching by Christians like you and me. Yes, we face a measure of hostility and rejection because the world hates our gospel. But it's nothing today like what will happen to these two witnesses, and it indicates a depth of evil that's in their hearts. In fact, I came across this quote by Arthur Pink. The language of the unsaved is, we will not have this man to reign over us. That's a line from a parable that Jesus told in Luke 19. We will not have this man reign over us. That's everybody you know who has not accepted the gospel. The attitude of the Christian is, for me to live is Christ, to honor, to please, to serve him. The Christian says, I will have this man to reign over me. But this rejection of Christ, this I will not have him reign over me, that's the attitude and conviction of every person who rejects Christ. The immoral person whose sin is so obvious, and that part we get, you're such an immoral person. That makes sense you don't like the gospel. It makes sense you're hostile toward Jesus. But also, but also, the moral person the moral person who is so good that you as a Christian can't imagine that they're on the outside and that God would condemn them to hell. That's challenging. But their their moralism makes no room for God, no room for Jesus. Their moralism shouts out, I will not have this man reign over me. And they will hate or or the very least reject those who say that they must. Their morality cannot save them. We know that their morality cannot save them, but they have made their morality their God. There's no way for any of us to work for what we have been given. So do not be surprised at any of this. People on the outside, no matter if they're very moral or very sinful, they do not want your Jesus. They do not want to hear your gospel. You must be aware that you will be fiercely opposed for telling them. But also, notice this last, but also, that God in the end will bring about the conversion of many for his own glory. Conversion is always God's work. God's the one who converts. God is the one who saves, not us. And God does a miracle here, a miracle of resurrection and ascension that points directly to the resurrection and ascension of Christ, by the way. He does a miracle of of resurrection and ascension to vindicate these two witnesses. But also to provide a sign to those who are watching that this message is authentic, it's legit. So verse 11, after three and a half days of their bodies being left to rot in the street, a a breath of life from God entered them. Now the breath of life, this is language directly out of 
Ezekiel 37, I don't know if you've read Ezekiel before, it's the weirdest book in the Bible, like just hands down the weirdest book. And in, in Ezekiel 37, there's this valley that's just filled with dry bones and the breath of God comes down on the dry bones and the dry bones all come back to life. And that's exactly the language that we have here. This breath of life from God comes down and these two witnesses come back to life. Now, listen, the party's still going on. They're singing, they're dancing, they're doing a conga line around the dead bodies. They're still exchanging gifts. They're drinking in the streets. They're having a grand old party until the very moment that the breath of God comes down. These two guys stand up. That ended the party. <laughs> party, party is now over. A breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Great fear. You want to learn a little Greek word? New Testament was written in Greek. A little Greek word here. Great fear. It's a little phrase. Two words that you know. The Greek word for, for fear is phobos, phobia. And mega, we use that for all kinds of stuff. And that's the word here. Megaphobos. Megaphobos. Great fear fell upon them. Later, we're going to see that they were terrified. Now that, by the way, this great fear, that's the desired reaction. That's exactly what God was going for. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven, so it's not over, saying to these two witnesses, come up here. And they ascended in much the same way that Jesus ascended in his ascension and as they were ascending, their enemies, verse 12 says, their enemies watched them. When Jesus ascended, it was his own followers that saw him ascend to heaven. But now the enemies of God are watching these two witnesses ascend up into heaven. And we're left to wonder in this moment, in this split second, as this is happening, the party has just come to an end. The two witnesses have risen to life. They've now ascended to heaven. Everybody's standing there. They're terrified. They're mega phobos. What's going to happen now? What's the response going to be? Are they going to dig their heels in even further? Because God's being so merciful throughout this to continue to give opportunities for them to repent. This is another such opportunity for them to believe the gospel. What's going to happen? Well, God gives them another sign and wonder Verse 13, this great earthquake happens. So you can imagine how terrifying this situation is. A tenth of the city starts to collapse in on itself. Buildings are falling down everywhere. Dust is in the air. 7,000 people were killed. And it says the rest were terrified. Mega Phobos. Again, an appropriate response. But people can be afraid of God and not turn to him. And so we're still wondering, is this going to make a difference? And as I said off the top, this passage deals with ethnic Israel. It is Jews who are watching all of this happen. It's Jews who are the witnesses to all of this, who heard the two witnesses, who heard the gospel about the Savior. It's Jews who celebrated their death, who watched them ascend to heaven, and who are now experiencing this destructive earthquake in their own city of Jerusalem. Because Israel was, listen, Israel was the people of God. 
but they had been set aside. Because the great sin of Israel that continues to this day, the great sin of Israel is that they had rejected their Messiah. That's what's been dogging them for 2,000 years. Israel had the Messiah, the Savior of the world, in Jerusalem, in their land, in Galilee, walking amongst them throughout Judea, preaching the gospel from town to town, and they've turned on him. When God called Abraham, he was choosing Israel, Abraham's offspring, to be the path through which humanity would be redeemed. Israel was to be the blessing to the world. They were to, they were to be the ones who introduced the Messiah to the entire world and to see them saved. The promises were given to Israel and are contained in the Hebrew scriptures. Israel was the birthplace of the Messiah and the place where he spent his life. But they rejected him because he didn't fit their notion of what a savior should be. So they crucified him. And when he was raised from the dead, they did everything in their power to not only deny it, but discredit the witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And then in the years to follow, they persecuted this sect of Messianic believers who were largely Jews. They pursued them. They persecuted them relentlessly, rejecting those who were part of what they called the way, the little Christs, Christians. And while God has been working for these past two millennia, working through his church, he has not forgotten the Jews. God only has one people of God. All those believers who have ever genuinely believed in the hope of the gospel. Those before Israel, true believers, those throughout the age of Israel, those now through the age that we're currently living in, anyone who genuinely believes in the promise. It's part of the people of God. But he's not forgotten the Jews and his intention is to call Israel back to himself before the end. And that's what we're seeing here in Revelation 11. As they watched all of this happen, they gave glory to the God of heaven and, and that's the language of repentance. They were terrified at the state that they found themselves in and they finally believed the things that they were seeing and they turned toward God and gave him glory. Repeatedly in the scriptures when we see this phrase, we see people who are genuinely turning their lives back to God. This is what Paul spoke about. And if you want to track down this even more to see these promises to Israel, then read this week Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul deals with this very issue. But here, listen to these verses. This is Romans 11, 25, 27. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Again, partially, that's what we're reading about here. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's amazing to think about. It's amazing to think about Jews turning back to God in a great revival when they finally realize that Jesus Christ is indeed their Messiah, their long-awaited, promised Messiah. You see, conversion, as I said earlier, conversion is always in God's hands to accomplish. 
My part in yours is simply to be a faithful witness, to keep doing the thing that he's put in our hands to do, to go and tell those who will never come to this building, go and tell them about Jesus. You have dozens of people like this in all the various spheres of your life. For those who are inquiring, who are interested, to be able to say to them, come and see what God is doing. Come and meet some other questions. Come and ask your questions. So think about that. Because my guess is, as you hear a message like this, as I hear a message like this, God's going to give us opportunities this week. He's going to put stuff in front of us that we're going to have to respond to. Will we be faithful? Will we be like these two witnesses? Will we go in, in the power of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with them? Would you, would you even think of a few names right now? Would you even pray, God, give me some of those opportunities this week? God, God put me on the stand. Let me tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about Jesus. Well, this, this passage, just to touch on verse 14, this passage is the conclusion of an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets, the seventh trumpet is coming, or the second and third woes, which parallel um, the, uh, the final trumpets. And this is God's final judgment that's coming now. And our mission in light of this is to witness, to witness of Jesus Christ, no matter the opposition that we face as the day of judgment draws near. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, uh, these uh, messages are um, challenging. They're, um, they're to be approached sober-mindedly, seriously. Father, we feel how the weight and burden of this, no doubt every genuine believer in the room and watching right now can feel the burden of this. Father, we know as your witnesses, as Christians, that we have been told to take up our cross and follow you. And taking up our cross means sacrifice. It can mean severed relationships. It can be economic loss. It could mean physical injury. It can mean ridicule and scorn, and certainly for Christians around the world, not so much here, Father. Sometimes it requires our lives. And every year we know there are people who lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. So God, I want to pray that we would be willing, every one of us who's truly saved, God, we would be willing to put anything on the line to be able to witness one more time to be able to tell one more person who's outside how to get inside and to have the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ. So God, thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for being with us during this time. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. We pray this in Christ's name.